Section thirty seven of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Seventeen forty nine. Letter sixty two. London, January tenth, old style, seventeen forty nine. Dear boy, I have received your letter of the thirty first December, new style. Your thanks for my present, as you call it, exceed the value of the present, but the use which you assure me that you will make of it is the thanks which I desire to receive. Due attention to the inside of books, and due contempt for the outside, is the proper relation between a man of sense and his books. Now that you are going a little more into the world, I will take this occasion to explain my intentions as to your future expenses, that you may know what you have to expect from me, and make your plan accordingly. I shall neither deny nor grudge you any money that may be necessary for either your improvement or your pleasures, I mean the pleasures of a rational being. Under the head of improvement, I mean the best books and the best masters, cost what they will. I also mean all the expense of lodgings, coach, dress, servants, etc., which, according to the several places where you may be, shall be respectfully necessary to enable you to keep the best company. Under the head of rational pleasures, I comprehend, first, proper charities, to real and compassionate objects of it, secondly, proper presents to those whom you are obliged, or whom you desire to oblige, thirdly, a conformity of expense to that of the company which you keep, as in public spectacles, your share of little entertainments, a few pistols at games of mere commerce, and other incidental calls of good company. The only two articles which I will never supply are the profusion of low riot, and the idle lavishness of negligence and laziness. A fool squanders away, without credit or advantage to himself, more than a man of sense spends with both. The latter employs his money as he does his time, and never spends a shilling of the one, nor a minute of the other, but in something that is either useful or rationally pleasing to himself or others. The former buys whatever he does not want, and does not pay for what he does want. He cannot withstand the charms of a toy-shop. Snuff-boxes, watches, heads of cane, etc., are his destruction." His servants and tradesmen conspire with his own indolence to cheat him, and in a very little time he is astonished, in the midst of all the ridiculous superfluities, to find himself in want of all the real comforts and necessaries of life. Without care and method, the largest fortune will not, and with them almost the smallest will, supply all necessary expenses. As far as you can possibly, pay ready money for everything you buy, and avoid bills." Pay that money, too, yourself, and not through the hands of any servant, who always either stipulates poundage, or requires a present for his good work, as they call it. Where you must have bills, as for meat and drink, clothes, etc., pay them regularly every month, and with your own hand. Never from a mistaken economy buy a thing you do not want, because it is cheap, or from a silly pride, because it is dear. Keep an account in a book of all that you receive, and of all that you pay, for no man who knows what he receives and what he pays ever runs out. I do not mean that you should keep an account of the shillings and half-crowns which you may spend in chair-hire, operas, etc. They are unworthy of the time, and of the ink that they would consume. Leave such minutiae to dull, penny-wise fellows, but remember in economy, as well as in every other part of life, to have a proper attention to proper objects, and the proper contempt for little ones." A strong mind sees things in their true proportions, a weak one views them through a magnifying medium, which, like the microscope, makes an elephant of a flea, magnifies all little objects, but cannot receive great ones. 
I have known many a man pass for a miser, by saving a penny and wrangling for tuppence, who was undoing himself at the same time by living above his income, and not attending to essential articles which were above his portee. The sure characteristic of a sound and strong mind is to find in everything those certain bounds, quos ultra citravi nequit consistere rectum. These boundaries are marked out by a very fine line, which only good sense and attention can discover. It is much too fine for vulgar eyes. In manners, this line is good breeding. Beyond it is troublesome ceremony, short of it is unbecoming negligence and inattention. In morals, it divides ostentatious puritanism from criminal relaxation, in religion, superstition from impiety, and, in short, every virtue from its kindred vice or weakness. I think you have sense enough to discover the line, keep it always in your eye, and learn to walk upon it. Rest upon Mr. Hart, and he will poise you till you are able to go alone. By the way, there are fewer people who walk well upon that line than upon the slack rope, and therefore a good performer shines so much the more. Your friend Comte Pertingu, who constantly inquires after you, has written to Comte Salmour, the governor of the academy at Turin, to prepare a room for you immediately after the ascension, and has recommended you to him in a manner which I hope you will give him no reason to repent or be ashamed of. As Comte Salmour's son, now residing at The Hague, is my particular acquaintance, I shall have regular and authentic accounts of all that you do at Turin. During your stay at Berlin, I expect that you should inform yourself thoroughly of the present state of the civil, military, and ecclesiastical government of the King of Prussia's dominions, particularly of the military, which is upon a better footing in that country than in any other in Europe. You will attend at the reviews, see the troops exercised, and inquire into the numbers of troops and companies in the respective regiments of horse, foot, and dragoons, the number and titles of the commissioned and non-commissioned officers in the several troops and companies, and also take care to learn the technical military terms in the German language, for though you are not to be a military man, yet these military matters are so frequently the subject of conversation that you will look very awkwardly if you are ignorant of them. Moreover, they are commonly the objects of negotiation, and, as such, fall within your future profession. You must also inform yourself of the reformation which the King of Prussia has lately made in the law, by which he has both lessened the number and shortened the duration of lawsuits. A great work, and worthy of so great a prince! As he is indisputably the ablest prince in Europe, every part of his government deserves your most diligent inquiry, and your most serious attention. It must be owned that you set out well, as a young politician, by beginning at Berlin, and then going to Turin, where you will see the next ablest monarch to that of Prussia, so that if you are capable of making political reflections, those two princes will furnish you with sufficient matter for them. I would have you endeavour to get acquainted with Monsieur de Maupertus, who is so eminently distinguished by all kinds of learning and merit, that one should be both sorry and ashamed of having been even a day in the same place with him, and not to have seen him. If you should have no other way of being introduced to him, I will send you a letter from hence. Monsieur Cagnoni, at Berlin, to whom I know you are recommended, is a very able man of business, thoroughly informed of every part of Europe, and his acquaintance, if you deserve and improve it as you should do, may be of great use to you. Remember to take the best dancing-master at Berlin, more to teach you to sit, stand, and walk gracefully than to dance finely. The graces, the graces, remember the graces. Adieu.
Letter sixty three London, january twenty fourth, old style, seventeen forty nine. Dear boy, I have received your letter of the twelfth, new style, in which I was surprised to find no mention of your approaching journey to Berlin, which, according to the first plan, was to be on the twentieth, new style, and upon which supposition I have for some time directed my letters to you, and Mr. Hart, at Berlin. I should be glad that yours were more minute with regard to your motions and transactions, and I desire that, for the future, they may contain accounts of what and who you see and hear, in your several places of residence. For I interest myself as much in the company you keep, and the pleasures you take, as in the studies you pursue, and therefore equally desire to be informed of them all. Another thing I desire, which is, that you will acknowledge my letters by their dates, that I may know which you do, and which you do not receive. As you found your brain considerably affected by the cold, you were very prudent not to turn it to poetry in that situation, and not less judicious in declining the borrowed aid of a stove, whose fumigation, instead of inspiration, would at best have produced what Mr. Pope calls a souterkin of wit. I will show your letter to Duval, by way of justification for not answering his challenge, and I think he must allow the validity of it, for a frozen brain is as unfit to answer a challenge in poetry as a blunt sword is for a single combat. You may, if you please, and therefore I flatter myself that you will, profit considerably by your stay at Berlin, in the article of manners and useful knowledge. Attention to what you will see and hear there, together with proper inquiries, and a little care and method in taking notes of what is more material, will procure you much useful knowledge. Many young people are so light, so dissipated, and so incurious, that they can hardly be said to see what they see, or to hear what they hear. That is, they hear in so superficial and inattentive a manner, that they might as well not see nor hear at all. For instance, if they see a public building, as a college, an hospital, an arsenal, etc., they content themselves with the first coup d'oeil, and neither take the time nor the trouble of informing themselves of the material parts of them, which are the constitution, the rules, and the order and economy on the inside. You will, I hope, go deeper, and make your way into the substance of things. For example, should you see a regiment reviewed at Berlin or Potsdam, instead of contenting yourself with the general glitter of the collective corps, and saying, Par manier d'acquit, that is very fine, I hope you will ask what number of troops or companies it consists of, what number of officers of the etat majeur, and what number of subalterns, how many bas officiers, or non-commissioned officers, as sergeants, corporals, anspides, fray corporals, etc., their pay, their clothing, and by whom, whether by the colonels, captains, or commissaries appointed for that purpose, to whom they are accountable, the method of recruiting, completing, etc. The same in civil manners. Inform yourself of the jurisdiction of a court of justice, of the rules and numbers and endowments of a college or an academy, and not only of the dimensions of the respective edifices, and let your letters to me contain these informations in proportion as you acquire them. I often reflect, with the most flattering hopes, how proud I shall be of you, if you should profit, as you may, of the opportunities which you have had, still have, and will have, of arriving at perfection, and, on the other hand, with the dread of the grief and shame you will give me if you do not. May the first be the case. God bless you. End of section 37 Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.